It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. This is a phone call you do not want to get. I hope none of you got a phone call similar to this one over the weekend. A guy named Owen Stark found out that his wife of 12 years is dating Bill de Blasio. And how did he find out? It was when the New York Post called him for comment. So his wife, Christy Stark, and de Blasio, the former mayor, uh, photographed by the tabloid, holding hands while they were walking in Manhattan. Um, Owen Stark told the Post he was not aware that his wife was dating de Blasio. However, Christy telling the tabloid that they were separated and currently in the process of getting a divorce. So when the New York Post calls him, Stark says, I don't know anything about my wife holding hands with Bill de Blasio. She's denied any sort of infidelity in the past. If she has something to tell me, she'll tell me. And as far as the divorce she claims they're going through, I haven't seen any legal communication. Or been made aware of anything like that. You know as much or more than I do at this point. She happens to be the CEO of an education company and one of the experts and advisors listed on the website, Bill de Blasio. Who, by the way, those of you who don't follow New York politics, you know, is separated from his wife, who was the first lady of the city during uh, his time as mayor, but they're still married. So that's the arrangement that they have chosen. All right. Kanye West, can you believe he is again in the process of spewing anti-Semitism at a party, mentioning none other than Adolf Hitler? I mean, what is it with this guy? He destroyed his career. He lost his big marketing deal with Adidas. He has been criticized the world over. And this is what he had to say, among other things. It's kind of hard to follow. Jesus Christ, Hitler, yay, that's the name he now uses. Third party, uh, reference to his plan to run for president. Think he'd bring a little baggage to that? I don't know. Sponsor that. Bring your sponsorships to that, because there's going to be some N-word that feel exactly like me. I don't give an F. N. He went into his custody situation with his kids. Uh, He said F Adidas. And he even called uh, a private school in L.A., Sierra Canyon, popular among celebrities and their kids, a Zionist school. You know, that's what got him suspended from X and uh, posted an image of uh, the Star of David combined with a swastika. I just, it defies belief. Obviously, he has serious mental and emotional issues. And one last item. Mayim Bialik posted on social media that she is out as the co-host of Jeopardy! that Sony, the company that 
owns the rights, I guess, has dumped her. So I guess you would say for 200 answer for the continuity of our viewers. Question, what is Sony's lame excuse for kicking this actress off the show? So now Ken Jennings, the one-time champion who'd been co-hosting with Bialik, will take over as the sole host of Jeopardy. Uh, This is messy. Not like it was when Alex Trebek was alive. All right, number one. Let's start with the campaign, shall we? By the way, we uh, covered some of this on Media Buzz. If you did not get a chance to see the show, uh, most of the segments are online. I hope you'll check them out. Nikki Haley closing the gap on Donald Trump in an early state. Because, you know, she has the surge. She's been getting all this good press lately. And then you look at the national numbers. I mean, Fox had a national poll yesterday. I know it's not a national election. Trump was at 69 friggin' percent. And I don't have it in front of me, but Haley and DeSantis were sort of like 16 and 14% or something in that range. I've never seen numbers like this. But a CBS poll, which came out yesterday as well, found that in New Hampshire, 29% of likely primary voters would vote for Nikki Haley. 44% backing Trump's latest good news for Haley. And in New Hampshire, she has the endorsement uh, of Governor Chris Sununu, who says he's going to put his machine to work for her. The New Hampshire voters in this uh, CBS YouGov poll also saying that Haley was the most likable and reasonable candidate in the primary. 53% describe her as prepared, compared to 54% for Trump. Um, this is all hurting Chris Christie, who's also putting his marbles on New Hampshire, but he hit 10% in this polls in New Hampshire, which means he could make, he probably will make, the CNN debate in New Hampshire just before the primary, according to Politico's analysis. Now, in Iowa, Haley's actually behind Ron DeSantis, who's got his endorsement from the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. 58% of likely caucus goers supporting Trump. 22, DeSantis. 13, Haley. But that's not her kind of electorate. What she is doing is trying to have a very strong showing in New Hampshire. And look, this is the first time I've seen any poll at all in this campaign in a particular state where, let me do the math here, 29, 39. All right, so she's down by 15% to Trump. That's a very sizable margin, but it's not utterly impossible that you could make that up in a little less than a month because New Hampshire tends to break late. And the other thing about New Hampshire is that independents can vote. So you have a much broader electorate 
some of whom would find Nikki Haley appealing. Now, here's a Washington Post piece that sort of touches on why I, I like Nikki Haley, Haley as a candidate. You know, they all have their strengths and weaknesses, but this is sort of presented as a liability. Let's see what you think. Flyers at a Nikki Haley, uh, well, a number of her campaign events say she is pro-life, and yet she draws plenty of voters who support abortion access and sometimes believe that she's pro-choice. Former UN ambassador gets applause for calls to end transgender athletes' participation in women's sports. But she couches it in a softer appeal, says this piece, about the need to grow strong girls. Spends more time in uh, education issues that have a more cross-party appeal. Lamenting low proficiencies in reading and math. And when she takes questions from Republicans asking how she'll crack down on election fraud, she says it's a real issue. Not that frequent, but it's a real issue, she says yet also attracts swing voters who backed Joe Biden in 2020. One woman, an independent who says she'll vote for anybody but Trump, showed up to a recent Iowa stop with a copy of The Light We Carry by Michelle Obama. And then she came to Haley's rally. While Trump vows retribution and Ron DeSantis promises to leave some border-crossing drug traffickers stone-cold dead, is there any other kind of dead? Uh, uh, appealing to a, they're appealing to a GOP basis, eager for partisan combat, but Haley has a different tone. Voters in places like New Hampshire view her as less divisive, more open to compromise, more relatable. But, and here's the negative spin, she's also facing attacks from all sides. Doubts that her approach can ultimately win the Republican nomination and accusations that she's tried to have it both ways on key issues. Let me just jump here and say, there are a lot of politicians who run for office who try to have it both ways. Um, I can see the other side. I understand this. What about this compromise? You know, they try to please all groups. They try to please the primary group that they're hoping to appeal to but they don't sort of insult or slam the door on others, particularly independents and more centrist, let's say, um, who might be persuaded to vote for them. Chris Christie says Haley's tipping around, tiptoeing around Trump's faults. You know, she always says he was the right president at the time, but now we need to move on. It's a, a line she uses a lot. Many Democrats say they find Haley's policies just as objectionable as her rivals, despite her talk of consensus. They talk, they point to her Tea Party roots, her abortion ban that she signed as South Carolina governor, conservative views on economics and the border. The abortion ban in South Carolina that she signed, by the way, 20 weeks, banned after 20 weeks. At the time, any kind of ban was considered outrageous. But Right now, if someone could ma- wave a magic wand and every state were to adopt a ban after 20 weeks, it would be considered uh, kind of a compromise victory for the pro-choice side. 
15 or 20 weeks is the compromised position now because of the fall of Roe. Now here is a fascinating piece, also in the Washington Post, about the president. And the first time I've seen anything like this reported, although you had to imagine that behind the scenes, Joe Biden is not happy with the state of his campaign. The night before he uh, left for Thanksgiving to enjoy the holiday on Nantucket, he gathered his closest aides for a meeting in the White House residence. Biden delivered some stern words for the small group. His poll numbers were unacceptably low, and he wanted to know what his team and his campaign were doing about it. He complained that his economic message had done little to move the ball, even as the economy was growing and unemployment was falling, according to people familiar with the comments. For months, President and First Lady Jill Biden have told aides and friends they are frustrated by the president's low approval rating and the polls that show him trailing Donald Trump. In recent weeks, they have grown upset that they are not making more progress. Since that previously unreported meeting, most polls continue to show Biden trailing Trump nationally and, more important, in key battleground states. And now Democrats are worried about their own electoral prospects with Joe at the head of the ticket. Biden's agenda hangs in the balance on Capitol Hill and his as his pleas to provide more aid to Ukraine and Israel are marred in partisan battles, even after Zelensky's visit. Biden's approval rating has tied his record low, 38%, with 58% disapproving, according to a Washington Post average of the last 17 polls. Voters, including a majority of Democrats, particularly concerned about Biden's age. So let me digress there for a moment. Of course he's frustrated. You know, politicians will say, oh, I don't look at the polls. The only poll that counts is Election Day, blah, blah. Of course he's frustrated. No matter what he does, he's not gaining any ground. In fact, he's losing ground. And... My personal theory is that this is overwhelmingly about his age. That when voters get asked, what do you think of Donald Trump's foreign policy? What do you think of Donald Trump's economic policy? Well, you know, I would leave out the border because it is a mess. It's an open border at this point. People who say he's 81 years old, he's too old, too old for this job. Therefore, they don't like him. Therefore, they don't believe he can serve another four years will say, no, I don't approve of his economic policy. I don't approve of his stance on this or that because they just view him through a negative lens because of his age, the one thing he can't do anything about. I mean, in one poll, he's trailing in Michigan, he's trailing Trump in Michigan by 10 points. If Joe Biden can't win Michigan, you know, industrial, usual blue state, not that different from Pennsylvania and others, then he loses the election. Now, yeah, okay, long time to go. It's almost a year out. He has been successful at raising money. When he was out in uh, California, he had fundraisers with Lenny Kravitz performing, with uh, Chrissy Teigen 
and Kerry Washington hosting an event for the First Lady with a guest list that included Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Now let's pivot back to Ron DeSantis. Jeff Rowe, top strategist for the main super PAC, supporting Ron DeSantis' campaign, resigned on Saturday night. This is never back down, which has raised most of the money for DeSantis' campaign. There's just been absolute turmoil. Three of its top officials were fired. The board chairman left. The organization's president left. And Jeff Rowe quit after there was an article in the Washington Post about backbiting within the pack. Rowe said in a statement, he cannot in good conscience stay affiliated with Never Back Down, given the statements in the Washington Post today. They are not true and an unwanted distraction at a critical time for Governor DeSantis. So let's just say none of this looks good for Ron DeSantis, even as he is sharpening his attacks on Donald Trump. In my view, something he should have started six months ago and not when his poll numbers have slid down to, you know, 10, 15, 16, depending on the poll on the state. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number two. This is like a deja vu story. So, Pentagon Chief Lloyd Austin arrived in Israel today. He's been a very low-key Secretary of Defense, but now he's in the limelight. It's his second visit to Israel since the surprise attack by Hamas. Austin is stressing the the Biden administration's support for Israel and concerns about the rising Palestinian death toll. Oh, but his message has become more blunt. Israel could face strategic defeat that would leave the country less secure if it doesn't do more to protect civilians. So the problem is, uh, I talked about this a little bit on the show, Joe Biden keeps saying, both at private fundraisers and in public, he's accused Israel of indiscriminate bombing. He's saying world opinion is turning against Israel. He does some version of this quite frequently, not always on camera. And... Bibi Netanyahu isn't listening to him. The Biden folks who keep talking about uh, the second phase of the war will be much more pinpoint. And the Bibi people are saying, you know, we're going to continue to prosecute this war the way we see a fit. He is thumbing his nose at Biden, with whom he's had an up and down relationship over the years. His most important ally. By the way, Lindsey Graham, criticizing Lloyd Austin on CNN, said he is naive and has uh, lo- says, I've lost all confidence in the guy. Look, Biden's right. World opinion turning against Israel didn't help that the Israeli defense forces killed three Israeli hostages who had been in captivity, or who were in captivity, even though they had been waving a white flag. It's just an awful thing that has just traumatized the Israelis, and understandably so, when there's so much efforts on bringing the hostages back alive. 
And there's a connection between these two items. Biden has limited his comments. He's made sharp comments, but he doesn't he hasn't doesn't do like a major speech on it. He just he talks about, you know, I have more money now that I'm releasing from the infrastructure law for this or that state or county or city. And then he tacks on the comments. Probably because he knows the war. Well, both wars. The war in Ukraine, losing a lot of Republican support in particular, and of course the Israeli Hamas conflict. And it's the same thing on the item I was talking about with Ukraine aid being tied up. Why on earth doesn't Joe Biden start calling some senators? Get involved personally. That's what Mitch McConnell says he needs to do, that Biden needs to make a deal with House Republicans. Instead, he, maybe he doesn't want to own the failure if it ends up failing, but he's letting the senators work it out, and they're not working it out. It's up and down every day. Oh, we're close to a compromise. Oh, we're nowhere near a compromise. And the House has already gone home. So this is why Biden got elected. He knew One of the things is he knew how to work the Hill, senator for 36 years. Meanwhile, I find this profoundly depressing. Roughly half of young Americans, that is ages 18 to 24, say Israel, this is a Harvard poll, Harvard-Harris, Israel should be, quote, ended, and given to Hamas and the Palestinians. 51% in that age group. And then the older you are, the more supportive of Israel you are, so only 4% of Americans over 65 say Israel should be wiped out. But all of of these younger people, many of whom are spectacularly ill-informed about the war, Hamas, the one that is committed publicly, openly, to genocide, kill all the Jews, river to the sea, all of that. Now, you can criticize, as Joe Biden is, as many Israelis are, Netanyahu's policies, uh, the bombing that media reports say is about half by unguided dumb bombs that are going to kill a lot more people than precision-guided bombs. And, you know, Israel seems either not to care or trying to be impervious to world opinion. But the half of those between 18 and 24, according to this poll, basically said, yeah, wipe Israel off the map. Give it all to the Palestinians. I I find it shocking. And again, I know a lot about what's going on on some of these college campuses, and it is appalling and just staggering. Number three, Rudy Giuliani and that $148 million verdict in the defamation suit brought by Shay Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman. So this D.C. jury just put up an astronomical number for damages three times larger than the women themselves in the lawsuit had asked for. And their lawyer said, send him a message. And that, that's a pretty expensive message. Now look, Rudy Giuliani is broke. Rudy Giuliani can't pay $147 million. I don't think he can pay $1 million. But his conduct during this trial and you know 
the, the trial was about damages. He already been found liable for spreading lies about these two women who talked about all the death threats they got. They had to leave their house. They went to hiding for a while. Their lives were ruined, traumatized. Um, here, in fact, is... Ruby Freeman, I know, went out and said, today's a good day. But she said that no amount of money would give her and her daughter back what they lost in the abuse they suffered after those accusations that they were, you know, messing with the, the voting machines, which they were not. And outside the courthouse after the verdict, Rudy, I don't regret a damn thing. He said the uh, death threats and attacks on the woman were abominable and deplorable, but that he was not responsible for that. He actually said on Steve Bannon's podcast that the other side's lawyers were actually working for Joe Biden, false, trying to get him to rat on Donald Trump. And I just have to say, Oh, here it is. He actually says, these people are working for the Bidens. They were asking me questions that had to do with Trump's liability. Basically, they wanted me to rat. I told them to go to hell. But what was really amazing is his own lawyer in court says, yes, these women were wrong. Yes, this should not have happened. Yes, um, Rudy said things he shouldn't have had. But what the attorney tried to do is to minimize his role and try to get the damages down. And then in the middle of the trial, I've talked about this. Rudy comes out, talks to reporters and said, no, no, it's true. They're guilty of doing this. They're guilty of fraud. He goes back to his original accusations at a time he's already been found guilty or liable, since it's a civil suit, a defamation suit, of peddling false accusations, going against the strategy of his own lawyer. I just don't get it. Uh, as I mentioned on the air, I mean, I've known Giuliani for decades. Knew him when he worked in the Reagan Justice Department. Covered his first unsuccessful um, campaign for mayor. Covered his short-lived 2008 campaign for president. I mean, it was a time, America's mayor, when this guy was riding high. And it's been quite a fall. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story four. So I wasn't going to touch this. I let it go on Friday, but there's a reason I'm bringing it up. So you may have heard about this Democratic congressional aide. His name is Aiden Mays Sorovsky, 24 years old. He was working for Maryland Senator Ben Cardin, who fired him less than a day after the disclosure that he had gone into a Senate hearing room used for many of the major confirmation hearings and other hearings and had sex with another man. And the only reason we know about this is because he filmed it. And now the Capitol Police, so he's been fired, the Capitol Police are investigating uh, did he violate any trespassing laws? Did this guy violate any uh, obscenity laws? 
He actually appeared in a 2020 campaign video with Joe Biden. But here's the thing. So this guy, Mays Sarovsky, puts out a statement. And he says, he's being attacked for who I love to pursue a political agenda. Any attempts to characterize my action as otherwise are fabricated. And I will be exploring what legal options are available to me in these matters. Oh, he's going to explore legal options. He says, look, some of my actions have shown poor judgment. So this is the thing. He is not being, he was not fired. He is not being investigated because he's gay and was with another gay man. Nobody cares about that. He's being, he was fired and he's being investigated because he thought it would be cool to do this in a Senate hearing room. That's all this is. Otherwise, nobody cares who he has sex with. And so it's just funny when people come under attack, they play the identity card. Oh, this is because I'm gay. They don't, must not like gays. It's a political agenda. No, it's not. What a dumb move. This young man blew up his career. And, you know, if they just done it and left, nobody would ever know about it. Of course, every, nowadays you got to tape everything. So there you have that. All right. Oh, by the way, days earlier, he denies this too. He confronted a Jewish congressman, Max Miller, and screamed, free Palestine, in his face. Story number five. I find this endlessly interesting. Jennifer Weiner, in an op-ed in the New York Times, says, I can't tell you where I put my car keys or what I had for breakfast three days ago, but I can tell you Oprah Winfrey's goal weight. My current Apple password and most of my elementary school teachers' names have been lost to the midst of time. But I can tell you how much Winfrey weighed at her heaviest and how many pounds of fat were in the wagon she schlepped across the stage after Optifast in 1988. This woman has a long memory. I can also tell you how my own weight compared with hers at any given moment of my adult life. By now, you've probably heard the news. Oprah Winfrey is thin again. You've seen pictures of the mogul, producer, talk show host, author, worldwide icon in a purple gown on the purple carpet for the freshly remade film, The Color Purple, the new version, which she co-produced. Maybe you've read the People magazine story in which she talks or comes clean in magazine speak about using one of the new weight loss drugs which, along with drinking a gallon of water every day, counting Weight Watchers points, and eating her last meal at 4 p.m., has gotten to her to within seven pounds of her goal weight. And um, Winfrey saying in this magazine interview, I had an awareness of medications, weight loss medications, but I felt I had to prove I had the willpower to do it. I now no longer feel that way. I have been blamed and shamed, and I blamed and shamed myself. Jennifer Weiner writes, I believe her. I believe that Winfrey has suffered in ways that I, as a larger woman, can understand and in ways that I, as a non-famous white woman, cannot. When I read her describing how weight occupied five decades of space in my brain, yo-yoing and feeling like, why can't I just conquer this thing? Believing willpower was my failing, I nodded in recognition. Been there, felt that. And... 
when you have a happy life full of love and accomplishment and all you can think is, if only I weren't so weak, if only I could lose 20, 40, 60 pounds, then I could be content. But, and here's the twist to the column that I wasn't expecting. I also believe that Winfrey was part of the problem, even as she sought to find a solution for herself, that she both suffered under diet culture and paid her suffering forward, profiting from the idea that all of us had to be thin and that all of us could be if we just tried hard enough. She pushed diet after diet in her magazine. Wait, take it off, keep it off, do it right this time. Read a typical cover. Three crash diets, doctor approved. That she made this her issue. I have absolutely no doubt that she was genuinely struggling with it. But did she then contribute to the cultural pressure and all these other women who aren't multi-zillionaires, who aren't famous, of any race, creed, or color, that they have to lose weight too? Look, if there was no one for Winfrey, would there still be uh, diet drugs and crash diets and Weight Watchers? Yeah. Can't pin it all on her, but she is a very visible symbol. And if she's almost at her goal, you know, and did it the way she did it, then I congratulate her. But I just thought that was thought-provoking uh, because I know women who think they're fat when they're not, when they're maybe a little bit overweight or think they're obese when they are more overweight. And I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, obviously, we do live in a diet culture, and Oprah has just pointed that out. With that, I will point out that we're coming to the end of this podcast, and I always appreciate your listening. We'll be doing it all this week, despite the holidays coming up, and we'll be doing Media Buzz next Sunday, even though it's Christmas Eve. That's the job. I'll show up. Thanks for listening. More Buzzmeter tomorrow. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 